All right, well, tonight we have a, a, um, a two-headed class, and I'm, uh, I'm honored to be the, uh, <laughs> just the laugh track to get, uh, to get Greg up here and talk about uh, the, uh, a, a teaser on Two House. So uh, first I'm going to go over a sacred name, and then he's going to come up. So can Satan 
It seems that Jews and Christians are the only ones who are left with generic titles for their mighty one. The first time that the Almighty spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai, he instructed, Say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim, the God of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov has sent me to you. Yahweh is my name forever, my memorial to all generations. <coughs> he wanted his name to be known throughout all the earth. He wanted his name to be honored, respected, and cherished. He wanted his people to call upon him by his personal name. But he never wanted his holy name to be dishonored or stripped of authority. The third commandment states, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh, thy Elohim, in vain. <laughs> Rudimentary explanation. The Hebrew word shav, commonly translated vain or vanity, means empty, worthless, or even false. The commandment to not take the Creator's name in vain is most often understood to refer to blasphemy, such as using his name as a curse. While this is certainly something that we should never do, most of the world seems to be perpetrating an even more severe violation of this commandment every day by altogether <coughs> replacing his name with general, empty, or false titles, and even forgetting it altogether, we have truly regarded his name, which is the name above all names, as worthless. <coughs> to ensure that the common people would not make the name of Yahweh common, Religious leaders added a commandment that forbade the people to call upon the name of Yahweh. In its place, they instructed them to call on Baal, which does not necessarily refer to a specific false god, but in Hebrew, Baal is simply the word for master or husband, the same indistinct title as Adonai or Lord. But the Torah explicitly commands, no one is authorized to add or remove commandments from the word of Yahweh. They broke the Torah by adding a commandment that eventually caused his name to be forgotten by Israel, unknown throughout the world, and in practice, void of power. the land of Egypt, 
but they neither knew his name nor what he required of them. His pronunciation, Yahweh, appears to be incorrect. Well, in modern Hebrew, but Paleo-Hebrew is, 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 is the point here, right? So, in Paleo-Hebrew, can we get Well, modern, modern Hebrew shouldn't be part of this context because that name is not a modern Hebrew name. We shouldn't look further towards Peter. Okay. So, 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 so whether or not he pronounces it correctly in, in modern standards is irrelevant. Okay. Would you say it was correct in Paleo-Hebrew? I don't know. I'm not a Paleo-Hebrew expert. Okay. In, but in, you can't say it's modern just because it's not consistent with modern Hebrew. Good. Okay. Yes, sir? I think one of the things that I, I thought he was going to mention but did not yes, sir. is when he talks about the text and the vowels, he never mentions Ketikare. Which Ketikare is when you see something, you're reading in the Hebrew text, and you see something, the vowel pointings of a word that don't make any sense, and that's supposed to drive, you're supposed to know automatically. And he kind of mentioned this with, you come across Yodhe you can't pronounce that, so it, you, the vowel pointings direct you to say Adonai. But the Master Eats did that because you're not supposed to know how to pronounce it. You're supposed to say Adonai. They don't, they don't point it, that is, put vowels on it, so that this is the pronunciation that you're supposed to say, literally, whatever, however you would say that in Hebrew. Yeah. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But they do that so that you can be directed that this is sacred. You're not supposed to pronounce the actual word. Right. And so you'll replace it when you're reading it out loud. Right. And, and I don't know that there was ever a thing of you shouldn't know how to pronounce it as much as you should not pronounce it in order that we might keep it right. holy. Correct. I'm oh, sorry, you got one? Okay, I got you. Go ahead. I think, so I think it's important to look at the motivation of those who want and believe that we can you know, pronounce the name. Because, uh, you know, I have no problem with the motive in terms of, you know, he said, call upon my name, and so if we're going to take a literal, you know, a literal view of that, then okay, great. The, the problem, of course, is uh, 
the folks in the quote-unquote sacred name movement don't have a consensus on what the sacred name is. Because while Yahweh is probably the most common, there's also Yahweh because of the modern Hebrew you know, concern there. Um, there is, a, you know, Nehemiah Gordon, who is a self-professed you know, ling linguistic expert in, in both uh, Paleo-Hebrew, Mishnaic Hebrew, and uh, Greek, you know, he claims that it should be pronounced Yehovah, uh, okay? So, and then there's others that say, well, it's Yehuda without the Dalit, so therefore Yehua is the pro proper pronunciation, right? Mm. And all of these people will pound their fists on the table and say, <coughs> this is the way we should be calling on the name of the Lord, and if you're not doing that, well, what's wrong with you? Right? Exactly. But yet, within these, within this movement, there's not consensus on what the sacred name is. So, sure. um, to his very last statement, when he's talking about the people didn't know his name nor what they what he expected of them, both of those have to be erroneous because what were the priests during the Birkat Kohanim? saying when he placed God's name on the people. Um, what's that? Exactly. And what what do you call the Torah, you know, as far as his expectations of his people? So that last statement that he said was entirely incorrect. Were there any other statements you heard that were incorrect? Uh, a lot of it just was a lot of omission. When he talked about the third commandment, for example, he didn't talk about what it actually meant. He just he he just kind of start, skirted around what it didn't mean. Okay. Anything else that you noticed? How about when he said that the scripture describes the prophets who are working for Jezebel as the prophets of the Lord? Uh, Ron. That's uh, absolutely incorrect. For one thing, I don't think it's Ha-Baal. He has a completely erroneous understanding of what the worship of the Baalim, plural, was. Right. The idea that somehow it was this come just as you are, you know, uh, prosperity gospel doesn't fit anything in the biblical context, nor does it fit ancient forms of idolatry. The whole point of idolatry was that you had a deity that you could point to that would help you with a specific thing. And they had a specific requirement to get that. Which is precisely why we don't see the, um, the, pro the, the prophets of Baal, in which there were over 400 of them, um, you know, out there doing whatever they wanted, they seem to be acting in concert. They're cutting themselves, they're yelling, they're, they're, they, they know how to do an offering. I mean, there's a very clear guideline but they're it, following. It, but it does appear, if you read through the text, there's two groups. They're the prophets of the Lord, and oh, there yeah. are the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of the Lord were killed. Mm -hmm. So now you got Elijah showing up and going, I, I think we need to choose. I, I, don't, I don't think we can serve both sides of this equation. We need to choose. You're going you're to serve the prophets of Baal you're gonna, and Baal, or you're going to serve the Lord. I, I think I know how that, how that came out. The prophets of Baal didn't work out too well that time. But, yeah. but there's a good severance package. 
Hate severance package. That's exactly um, right. I think that the uh, one of the other problems that he has with what the sacred name movement in general is they want to make it sound as though the only name you can use for God is this four-letter tetragrammaton, when in actuality God himself uses in dozens of names to describe himself. In fact, explicitly in the book of Exodus, he says to Moses that the patriarchs, who are the highest levels of our faith, we would look back to them as the precursors, they did not know me by this Yud thing. and Hay and Bob and Hay. They knew me by El Shaddai. They, you know, so it's like there's a completely different, so they didn't need to know that name, at least not what it meant. Mm -hmm. um, in order for them to be able to connect to God. Plus, in the book of Hosea, speaking prophetically, God says the people of Israel will no longer call me Baali, which is my Lord, but they will call me Ishi. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say they will call me my, my special name. Exactly. Yes? I'm curious, are there any other theories that have a different first part of the name? Or is, is the Yah part, is that mostly consistent with? That seems to be. I mean, uh, as, as Greg pointed out, there's, there's a lot, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's the shotgun scatter, but there seems to be a consistency that that Yah is is a big part of this, and it, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yah this, Yah that, Yahovah, uh, and you know that's 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 okay. There's two things that I find wrong with this movement, so we'll get to that when your comments are done. Oh, I was just gonna say that I'm not sure if Greg mentioned this one earlier, but to that point about the word Yah being included that. People take it so far with, like, even Messiah Yeshua's name exactly. to say that it's Yahuwah, Yah, Yahshua, and or it's because Yahshua. it says, yeah. because they say, oh, well, it has to include the name of God in it because he's, you know, divine, and, and so they they go so far as to, you know, further modify it in this in this yeah. manner. So any any place that we can put in a Yah and get God's name in there. We're going to do it. So Yahuda is the name of that tribe, not Yehuda, and his name is Yahshua, because we've got to get that Yah in there rather than Yeshua. Um, I think maybe if I I might have misunderstood your point about that one verse that <coughs> the patriarchs did not know the name Yehovah. They did. Right. Um, Abraham uses that name. Sarah uses that name. Uh, so that's actually been something that's kind of always been a little intriguing for me. Um, but but he is but, quoting from the right, scripture. But, but God says, I, I will make myself which you or your forefathers did not know. So God actually says that about yeah. himself. So there's a, so, there's a revelation aspect right, that right. he's speaking right. of. Not that he didn't know the name, because but that there's an aspect of the name and, and something okay, that goes along. My, my only point in yeah. using that as an example is just to say that if the name was as preeminent as the sacred name would say, that you, I mean, some people go so far as to say that you cannot be saved if you do not use this name. Exactly. You will burn in hell if you don't so use this name. That, makes that, that doesn't make any sense in the context that of that verse. Because God's saying this name, well, at least what it means, maybe maybe not the actual name itself, but the significance of it has been withheld from the from the patriarchs and it's going to reveal it to you. That's something different. So, well, his, his verse that he pulled in Exodus 3, 15, um, I think the whole context of that, God actually kind of gives a different, um, a different point than what Michael Reed was trying to say, because so Moses says, "Who should I say sent me?" He says, "Well, tell him I am who I am sent you." 
and say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then he goes into verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the, the Lord, the God of your uh, fathers, has sent me to you. This shall be my name forever. But God even said, well, tell them I am. Like, I am who I am. Um, so I, I, I'm going to be who I'm going to be regardless of what you call me. I am exactly. still God. Exactly. So. That's a good way. Good point. So let's just tie this up with what are the problems and what are the responses? Okay? So uh, the sacred name people, we can't speak about monolithically any, you know, any more than we can about Judaism, right? Or Christianity. Um, but generically, we would see two problems with this type of theology. The first is that referring to God by titles rather than his name is a problem for them. That's why you saw Michael Rood has a real problem with the title Lord. Even though the King James New American Standard and the ESV go out of their way to differentiate in the English characters by using small caps for Lord to let you know this was a translation of the Tetragrammaton. That's not good enough. We can't call God God. We have to call him. We can't call him Elohim. That's a title, right? So we got to call him by his name. I can't call you that wonderful, awesome, handsome man. I can't do that. I have to call you Mr. Traficanti. That's what they're saying. Now, that's very noble. There's nothing wrong with that. But to say that that's what the scripture teaches is not the case. God gives himself titles throughout the scripture. He describes his character by describing himself with a title. Maybe I've missed it, but where does it come from where you're not supposed to try to pronounce the Yodhivate? The Masoretes, and prior to them, the scribes wrote, as they were writing the scriptures and copying it and making copies of it, and when they would get to the name of God, that tetragrammaton, they would wash their hands, say a blessing, and they would write it. But when they wrote it, they would write it in such a way that it would cause you to look in the margin. So that when you saw it, you'd go, what? And that, so are they the ones that also would say you should, uh, you should, you should substitute use Adonai or Yes, Hashem? you should substitute it. Yes. That's where that comes from. But they didn't make that up. That was the tradition in order that we might elevate his name and make it special. And so they, Johnny said they were over in this corner. The, the well, master well, part of the wall over here. Right here. But you've wall. got scribes doing that way back prior to that. Way back. Uh, well, some of the, some of the study I've done on, on this issue at least goes back to here in the Babylonian Babylonian exile. In fact, <clears throat> at least some of the research that I came across, the term today, Yahoo. Right. We, we, term, we, think such of, a we think of the internet company or right, the website. But that name for <laughs> a long, long time was a derogatory 
He was like, you Yahoo, you doofus, you idiot, you know, it was that kind of, that kind of thing. <laughs> there is, uh, there's at least one school of thought that, that traces the origin of that back to the Babylonian exile because when they went into exile in Babylon, that the Babylonians took the name because presumably prior to then it was more commonly used, although it's always been used with a great with great reverence and great respect. But it, because it was more commonly used, it was known to the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians took it and started to create these derogatory terms with the name, of which Yahoo is one of them, supposedly according to this research I came across. And 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 that was a big motivation as to why Ezra and who was a scribe, and the men of the Great Assembly began to uh, discourage the uh, the public use of the name, not because they had a problem with the people knowing the name, but it was more to um, to keep the name from being uh, maligned, maligned, and, and desecrated by. To reverence and protect it. Right. So yes, yes. I was just going to say to your point, Greg. It makes sense what Michael Rood was talking about in terms of making the name worthless. By your explanation, if they're use, if the Babylonians are using the name to make it a derogatory term, then they're essentially making it worthless in their own minds, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I have a question. So in, in that <coughs> sense, it was more of kind of a fence that they built to yes. protect it. Yeah. Um, but I guess w what I'm what, what I'm trying to understand is how would I mean I guess I can use for example like how how the world has like perverted sex, and I'm saying like how would that sh I mean make it to where the believers who actually used it correctly would no longer be able to back then just because of the profanity and whatever they were doing to the name. Like, why couldn't those who were using his name correctly back then continue to? Yeah, I, I think the problem would be, why would you do so if it could be then taken and misused? Have you noticed how the name of our master is one of the widely, most widely used curse words and slanderous statements that the world has ever known? Why would that be the case? I would submit it's because it's a reverenced name and therefore because it's lifted up by some, others will trash it as best they can. But wouldn't, wouldn't I, I mean, as someone who used it correctly, wouldn't I still continue to use it in Yeshua? You should, there's, there's certainly it? no reason why you couldn't. However, I, I think the point was, in order to dissuade this from happening, it was protected and subverted. The other thing too, I think historically speaking, is once we came back from Babylon, we, we never, I mean really from that point, to this very day, well, maybe even the last exception of the last sixty something years, uh, we've always been 
under some sort of a Gentile oppression, right? So we come back before long, the Greeks, you know, are there, you know, the Syrian Greeks, you know, then the Romans, then we're kicked out of the land and we're, you know, scattered, you know, so we've always, we've always been kind of under the thumb of, if you will, of uh, Gentiles who uh, would not be so inclined as to treat the name respectfully. With so, reverence And two things, that's a good point, but I think, um, and that's why personally I don't have a problem with, with, with someone who wants to, in their, in their personal prayer time, you know, use the name of God. I, I don't have a problem with that. Just like you said, when the world takes something that's perverted, um, that the thing in and of itself is still holy, right? Mm -hmm. And but it's not our job to cast pearls in front of swine because swine are going to abuse it. So I think that you know if it's precious to us, how much more should we treasure it um, and and not just uh, you know, wear it out? Um, secondly, and, and this is I think even after the ba Babylonian captivity, wasn't the name still pronounced on uh, Yom Kippur during the uh, ironic blessing? Right, so, fact. Which, which is kind of like the, the concept of the most intimate time, uh, where the, the holiest day of the year, if you will, and that's 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 the the, the only ex exception to the rule of, of, of it being used. Um, well, in yeah, fact, yeah. On, on that point, if you if you, you know, those of you who participated in you know the the mm -hmm. prayers for Yom Kippur, when we said the Shema, both for the Kol Nidre service and then for the Shachri and the Neila service. When we said the Shema, traditionally, we only, this is the only time that we actually say loudly the second verse of the Shema, um, blessed be his glorious name, whose kingdom is you know, forever and ever, right? Because the, the, the practice became that, when, that because the name was only spoken publicly once a year by the high priest on Yom Kippur when he came out after going into the Holy of Holies, that when he would come out, he would say the Birkat HaKohanim. And when he would speak the name, everybody, you know, in the court of the temple would immediately, you know, hit the dirt, face first, prostrate, and they would respond when they heard the name, blessed is his glorious name. And that's the reason why the rest of the year, when we said the Shema, we say that in an undertone to reserve the the to, to reserve the specialness and the holiness of it for Yom Kippur when the name was actually spoken before the people. I, by the I, I think I think there's other traditions that indicate that the name was actually spoken each day in the temple when the guy came out after you know the Levi the priest came out after um, doing the incense stuff and, and all that deal and you know every you know, he would raise his hands and everyone would look down because the Shekinah could light on his fingers and he would say the name then uh, I've, I've read both ways I don't know um, I, I tend to think it was reserved for one day a year it could have been every day but only by that one guy either way our people have traditionally preserved it and cared for it. Is there any scriptural mandate that says you can't say his name? No. Absolutely not. Just can't take it in vain. You just can't take it in vain, whatever that means. You know, we've seen two or three different uh, 
ways to view that, and I, I like all of them. So if you want to use his name, I don't have any problem with that. I, I wonder, though, how you'll know how to pronounce it, because I don't think I'm really clear on how to pronounce it. But yeah, that be, be that as it may. You had one thing. Um, I was going to say, so the using of the name is really for kind of a family of God. It's not for public consumption, okay. as it were. Is that what we're saying? Well, you're, you're implying that it's protected in that way by using it only amongst his family. Right. Is that, that certainly is, is apparent in the traditions okay. of our people, yes. Okay. Again, simply offense to, to maintain it's, its holiness. And that's a command. Yeah. So well, how are we going to do that? Uh, you know, we can come up with our own ways, I suppose. Yes, so just for clarification, because of the differing opinions of what the name is, the, the, the guarding of it and all that, we're not really sure what specifically the guarding is, what we're guarding, or <laughs> what we're trying to avoid saying or casting before, before swine. I think we're, we're trying to avoid making his name common. Which name? His name. The Tetragrammaton, the ineffable name. That name, the Yod Hey and the Vav Hey. Okay. <laughs> However you want to pronounce <laughs> that. I guess that's it. It was a trick. You were trying to get me to pronounce it. Very clever you are. <laughs> is is that you had a good point though? Because that was going to be my second part. Like anyone who tries to pronounce it, like that's maybe what we're trying to avoid doing. I don't, like, I don't particularly care if you try to pronounce it. I don't think God cares. What I do think God cares about is his character, his reputation, and his name, quote-unquote. So, um, with you, I, I try and refer to your mother-in-law as your mother-in-law. You know, and I, I won't necessarily use her first name with you. You can call her Alan all you want. But I will try and describe her in third-person type terms in order to maintain her specialness. Mm -hmm. It's that same thing. So well, all I'm trying to do is make sure that the respect you have for her, which you've demonstrated, it's beautiful, is maintained. So I'm going to encourage that through my speech. And I think that's what we're looking at. But what we're talking about is healthy, is right, and helps us with the third commandment. And just to echo the point that Yeshua, he, he referred to God as Father all the time. He, he used circumlocution all the time. He always spoke around the name. And we never have any, a single example of where he would use the Tetragrammaton. He, you know, he's the heavenly father, you're this, you're that, the holy one, the, the, the power on high, heaven, re, you know, requires this, you know, that kind of deal. He was never using that. And if anyone could, right. certainly it would be him. Right? Okay. So, two problems. Two problems. <laughs> uh, I think one of the biggest problems in uh, all of the, how we're going to say Yokei Vavke, is that there's a potential of undermining altogether the name which is above all names, Yeshua. Mm -hmm. And you know, in Acts 4 and Philippians 2, it's clear that apart from the name of Yeshua, there is no salvation. Every 
knee will bow down, every tongue will confess. And when it talks about Yeshua being the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, it says Lord in English, but in Greek that's Kudios. And that's the same word in the Septuagint that is used to reference Yudke and Vavke. Yeah. So Unfor ultimately... The right, unfortunately it's, it's also the same word absolutely. for Lord, so right. we, can't, we can't really know. And yeah. so I think the biggest focus in that is that ultimately it's a possibility to undermine that the name above all names in heaven and earth, we're told, is the actual name of Yeshua. So if we want to really figure out which name we should be speaking in or referring to God or to you know Him who can save His people out of Egypt or you know from or, His present age, or avoiding in order to reverence. Right, um, we should speak the name Yeshua. You bet. So the two problems I have with the sacred name movement is first that they have a problem with using any pronouns or any titles for God. Now that's God the Father, the Creator, as well as Yeshua. They, they don't want to use any titles. You've got to use a direct name. So I can't, you know, call Gideon the awesome one. Like, I can't do that. I've got to call him Mr. Munoz. It's got to be that way. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I have a problem with that. Seem, Your mileage may vary. Does, this, does it seem like King David had a problem with that too? <laughs> he constantly referred to God and titles and things like that, right? He even said the name Yah in Psalm 68. Which is funny because Mr. Root actually cited Hallelujah as saying God's name. But Yah is actually a truncation. It's not really his name. <laughs> it's exactly not really right. his name. So it's like, in fact, I, that actually, out of all the sacred name names, I have the least problem with that one because I do agree that based on the pronunciation, based on history, whatever else, it probably is pronounced that way. So if you want to refer to God as that, so that you have a name to give God, that's totally fine. That's actually, we actually read that. In the Sidur. It's a quote from scripture. But it's right. not his name. Well, are you Joe or Joseph? Right. <laughs> but to your point, obviously, the scriptures are replete with titles. In fact, there's many more titles than his name. But that's not the biggie. Maybe you, you want to constantly call me Mr. Squitcherini instead of awesome teacher. <laughs> handsome guy, whatever. That's fine. I don't have any problem with that. The Italian style. The Italian style. <laughs> the grand poobah. Yeah, yeah. The problem, though, is the pronunciation. That in their given sect or their particular venue, they have determined that they know the pronunciation and that if you don't pronounce it, well, your salvation is in question. I have a problem with that. Right? Mm -hmm. And then to change other words and their pronunciation in order to really go over the top with the name, I think is another problem. I think the best way to describe this is bad scholarship. If you want to take Yeshua's name and call him Yahshua instead of Yeshua, that's your prerogative. But to me, you sound like someone who's not educated. You sound to me like 
a Gentile. Seriously. And, and quite frankly, if, if you look at the way they pronounce any of the other Hebrew words, and I've used one example, instead of Yehuda as being the, one of the tribes, to call it Yahuda in order to throw the name of God in there, you sound like you have not studied the Hebrew vowels. Yes? Well, the biggest problem with using Yeshua's name in that way is you actually lose the meaning completely. His because name the meaning actually, is salvation. And, and which is what the angel made clear. Right? Save his people. You shall call him Yeshua. Why? Because he will save Hello, Yeshua, his people from their sins. So if you don't if you don't have in fact, I mean the irony here I suppose is that we're trying to go back and hold here, right? That's the idea. If you take away the meaning of Yeshua's name, you actually lose him in the Tanakh. He's over and over and over again Amen. as the word salvation. Amen. So if you if you want to say God is salvation, which would be we using the Yah, right. that's my name. That's Yahoshua. That's right. It's a different word. It's not exactly the same name. And it's not even Yahoshua. It's Yahoshua. So it's I don't know what the whole idea there is. Um, well, the whole idea. Well, I know what, I know what the idea is. Yeah. I don't know what they could possibly base it on because there's no Hebrew scholar in my mind that would ever agree with that. Well, not a real one. I, I, and it brings me back to the the, the bottom line. And, and with this, I am done. We're late to this game. <coughs> and I see great value in joining ourselves to Israel, to their traditions, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes stupid, and becoming a part of the people of God. We can be the ones, having joined ourselves to Israel, to stand tall, for Messiah Yeshua and for the promise given to Abraham that we get a part that he would fulfill that promise by allowing us to join shame on us if we come in all high and mighty filled with pride and tell them how to say their own Hebrew words. How to name their own God. He started out that thing by saying that the King James Bible was perverted and had specifically hidden the name of God. That the scribes had also specifically come up with a commandment that you couldn't say the name of God. This is just bad scholarship. And I would strongly encourage us not to look down on the folks that are in this, but to help them with just a little bit of assistance. They can understand that we're standing there with them, reading the same scriptures, and understanding the vowel points, and seeing his name's not Yahshua. We don't need to add the name of God to Yeshua. He is God. He doesn't need another name. The essence of his mission is in his name.
He is the essence of salvation. Comments, questions? And anyone who wants to forget that fact or, for, or forego that to um, for this purpose, you know, he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So, you know, there, right there's your proof that, okay, you don't say the right name, you don't, you know, you're going to hell or anything like that. He says, I'm the way. This is it. That's it. That's your proof text right there. So, we're coming in contact with more folks that have this bent. And, and I am convinced it's strictly a lack of scholarship. It's strictly a lack of opportunity in teaching. And, and quite frankly, most of the morass of the visible expression of the church is due to whom? The teachers. And their unwillingness to teach the whole counsel of God. That there are commandments that God expects his, his people to keep. Same thing with the pronunciation. So let's, let's use a little bit of grain of salt, some serious doses of love, pull some folks aside, show them some scholarship. Amen? Mm -hmm. um, there's a, there is a, uh, there's a family that's kind of somewhat loosely associated with Bellator that um, are big into the sacred name, you know, uh, idea. And um, and he has engaged me a couple of times on this topic, and we've gone round and round, and and, uh, and I I think I I got him to concede the point that there wasn't consensus within the sacred name on what the name actually was, but uh, but nevertheless he said, well look, he said, you know I I really feel con I have strong convictions that I need to be using, you know. The name as I understand it, and, I, and my response to him was, "Well, then Bring use, on, then use the, use the name," and <clears throat> and his concern was um, that whenever they would attend shockery service here, mm -hmm. right, we don't use the name, right. The the custom in this community follows uh, greater greater Israel. And they felt uncomfortable with that, and so they don't they don't come to Shakari. But I said, well, look, you know, it, I, and he, we talked about Yah, and and I said, well, are you okay with Yah? And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I am okay with Yah. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> then you know, if you are praying and you want to use, if you're praying. You know, in the group setting, and you want to use Yah, then use Yah. You know, people won't make too much fun of you. You know, and, and but the point is, I, I didn't want to discourage him from doing what he truly felt was right. Amen. Um, but the the flip side of that is, there is it's just like if I go visit somebody else's community, I have to be respectful of the. Customs. Of the customs, traditions of that community, whether I personally agree with it or personally practice it that way or not, yeah. and so I think there's got to be that sensitivity all on both. All you bet. Around, so. And, and I, I think we, you know, we'll close this this topic on on this point. To me, this is not a deal breaker. 
if you sound weird, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. So you sound weird. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to make fun of you. I may sit down with you and go, so why are you doing that and why do you sound like that all the time? <laughs> but that should bond me to you. We should then understand one another. And, and like Greg said, if, if that's your conviction, cool. Now, if you've got the conviction that if you don't say it that very way, there's a problem with your walk, there's a problem with your salvation, there's a problem with your relationship with God, I'm not going to get up from the couch until we come to some resolution because I will strongly disagree with you. But if you want to paddle your own canoe, bring the boat. Amen? Okay, now, a little tickle, a teaser of two house. Two house, Joe asked me last week if I would just do kind of a precursor and to be completely honest with you before everything else going on. Uh, well, I, truth be told, this is a week earlier than we had originally. Is that He sent me an email this morning. Oh, you're you're, you're ready for today, right? You're ready to talk about two house tonight, and I'm like, Oh, so, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so this is uh, so I just I've got a couple of notes up here that I'm gonna follow along on. But so this is just a this is gonna be uh, kind of high level. Oh, thank you. This is gonna be high level um, overview and. What we'll try to do is come back later and do a more exhaustive discussion on this. Uh, is there anybody in the room that is not at least somewhat familiar with the two-house theology? Colby, Brock. Is it the polymono? Polytheistic, monotheistic? No. No. Uh, so three. maybe three people? Definitely three. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, so, um, so I'll give a, a brief description. There's a lot of meat on the bone to, to be discussed here. What I want to do is focus on a couple key texts. And my goal tonight is certainly not to go in, into all the nuances because we don't have time. It's not to, to either say this is right or it's, or it's wrong. And so I'm not going to make any... Um, blanket statements one way or the other, okay? Um, I, what I really want to do is introduce a couple of the key texts as some framework, and then, like I said, we'll come back later and, and prepare a more uh, exhaustive class and discussion on it. But simply said, well, if it can be said simply, the two-house, uh, there's something out there called the two-house movement, which adheres to a, a doctrine or a theology called the two-house theology. The two houses uh, would be um, the house of Israel, okay, and the house of Judah, okay. And, and it really kind of focuses around the uh, prophecy that we have in Ezekiel 37, although it shows up many other places, but this is kind of a kind of comes to a head here. And basically, 
you know, if, if we know our history, right, we know that the, that the, the kingdom was divided after Solomon, right, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay, and we know that the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, presumably never to be seen again, okay, also known as the lost tribes of Israel, and then we have what's, the, and then we have the southern kingdom, which was known as the kingdom of Judah, because the tribe of Judah was the dominant tribe there, as well as Benjamin and most of the tribe of Levi. And so they go into captivity here uh, into the Babylon, to the Babylonian captivity, right? Um, and then we have prophecies in Ezekiel and other places that talk about in the end of days uh, that God will bring back these two houses and unite them again as one like they were under Solomon and David and prior. Okay. You mentioned that the house of Judah is was the representation of those of those southern kingdoms. Um, it, it might be good to mention that the, the house of Israel and those northern kingdoms was also known by the largest of the tribes as well. Right, which would be Ephraim, and we're going to talk about that tonight. So Ephraim is the other the other name. There's actually, it, it can get complicated, but Ephraim being the largest tribe in the north, um, and so the northern kingdom was also known as, as Ephraim. Okay, So the two-house movement basically has kind of latched on to this prophecy. And the prophecy, by the way, is that the Messiah will, um, when he comes, or as we would say, when he returns, that he, one of the things that he will do, one of the things that defines the Messiah is that he will uh, bring to pass this particular prophecy. And he will take uh, the prophecy uses um, the idea of sticks. And he, you know, God tells Ezekiel, take, take a stick in your hand. This is the stick for the house of Ephraim. Take another stick. This is the stick for the house of Judah. And he says, hold them together. <coughs> Excuse me. Hold them together, and they'll become one. And it's a picture of what Messiah will do when he comes. Is he'll, he'll bring these two houses back together, and we'll be uh, united as one people with one shepherd, in one land, with one law, etc., etc. Okay, so that's the that's the that's what the prophecy says. The two house movement um, has come out of the uh, Hebrew roots messianic movement, and and they've latched on the the Gentiles coming into the movement have latched on to this idea of the house of Israel, which. Uh, which nobody knows where they are today. They were lost, okay, lost tribes of Israel. They've kind of latched onto this through some other texts within the scripture, and they, for various reasons, have said, look, we are, we are, we are Israel. We are the, the lost northern kingdoms, and God is bringing us back, okay? And so the two-house movement basically says uh, there is... Uh, there is Israel, which is basically Gentiles who are coming back to Torah. Um, 
And some in that movement will even say that any Christian who names the name of Yeshua is an Ephraimite, an Israelite. Okay, so, and by the way, there's not, there's no monolithic two-house movement either. So many two-housers um, are Karaites in their view with respect to Torah and traditions and things like that, but that's not everybody. There's some that are, there's one group out there that's uh, strictly orthodox in their approach, um, but they believe that they are in fact, you know, part of the, the, the lost tribes of the northern kingdom, but they are uh, orthodox in every way, uh, in terms of halakha and everything else. And then there's everything in between. So there's no monolithic view in this movement either, uh, but but there's a controversy because some people will say, well, that's crazy. You're not really descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, and of course, and, and then there's arguments on their side, some of which, by the way, they're not arguing that they're physically physical descendants. Some do argue they're physical descendants. And again, there's kind of good points on both sides of the argument. Okay. What I want to do is really focus in on. Uh, I, I don't want to try to solve whether the, you know, which side is right or wrong. Uh, that's not the point of tonight. What I want to do is just focus in on some basic text to get us thinking about this, and then we'll come back later and dive into it. Yes, sir. I just have a question. Um, when it comes to the tribes, is this split up into the twelve tribes, where it's like? One that has a Judah is one, and then the rest eleven or thirteen or whatever. Okay, so Judah represents. So here's here's the here's the thing. Um, okay. We have so we have Abraham, right? Starts here. God calls Abraham. We're going way back now. That's great. <laughs> Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, right? His name has changed. Okay. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Okay. Now, what we find is, um, is that within the scripture, within the Tanakh, there are several different terms that are used. We have a term called uh, house of Jacob. Okay. House of Jacob always refers to all 12 tribes. Always. You'll never find an exception to that that I'm aware of. Okay. But then sometimes the whole house is also referred to as the house of Israel because, you know, his name was Israel. So when you're reading in the, in the Tanakh and you see the, the term house of Israel, you have to really stop and make sure you read the context because sometimes it can be referring to all 12 tribes, the whole, the whole nation, or sometimes it can be referring to the two divisions, right? Because the, the 12 tribes divided into north and south, okay? Yeah, it depends on where you're reading in the Tanakh. Right, it depends on where you're at in the Tanakh. Um, and, 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 yeah, I mean, the, the prophets, especially, sometimes you have to really pay attention because they can be using the term for, the, for, for all the 
entire nation or just the northern kingdom. <clears throat> but the, again, the northern kingdom becomes Israel or Ephraim. Ephraim. And then Judah. Okay. And it's named Judah simply, again, because Judah was the dominant tribe. So it's just like if you're from Charlotte, you're a Charlottean. If you lived in the southern kingdom known as Judah, you're a Jew. Okay? More technically, but, but before, before the southern kingdom took on the namesake of its dominant tribe, technically a Jew would only be someone who was a direct descendant of Judah, who was part of the tribe of Judah. So, if you would have walked up to Moses back in the day and asked him, what's it like to be a Jew? He'd say, I have no idea. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Levite. Okay. I mean, and it's important that we put ourselves back in that context because, of course, now the term Jew refers co collectively to the descendants of Abraham. But biblically, that's not true. And depending on where you're at in the Tanakh, and what history has happened and what history hasn't happened yet, the terms can change. Okay? But a Jew in the in the Bible was specifically referring to, most of the time referring to somebody who was from the southern kingdom. And and even so, when Abraham returned from fighting the uh, four kings, you know, he was referred at that point as a Hebrew, right, as one who crossed over. So he wouldn't have uh, known what it had been like to be a Jew either. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, so what I want to do, though, is I want to go back. we got to go back to, uh, we really have to go back to Abraham. Okay. Because there's some, there's some, Scripture here that I want to focus on. Somebody open up to um, somebody open up to Genesis twelve, verse three. Okay. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. So here. Abraham's just been called out, right? Uh, this is the beginning of Lechlecha, Parshat Lechlecha. He's just been called out. God makes this, this promise to him in verse 3 that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In the Hebrew, that word um, blessed is venikeu, okay? And What's interesting about that word is normally when you use when you're using the word to bless in Hebrew, the root is barach, right? And from which we get barhu, bracha, you know, um, brachot, etc. But what's interesting is the word here in the Hebrew is instead of uh, instead of with a bait, it's with a, a nun, venikelu, okay, and that's a, that's a nuance in that particular uh, Hebrew word. The two-house uh, movement kind of picks up on this. And by the way, where do they get this from? How do they know it's a nuance? From the sages. 
the sages, okay? Because the sages picked up on this and they said, huh, well that's kind of interesting. Why did God choose to use that particular word? Because almost all the time we would say that differently. And when you go back and look at the discussion from Chazal about that, um, you can go to uh, to the Midrash Rabbah Bereshit, uh, Tractate Sota, and the Talmud, and Tractate Kunim, and the Talmud, they, they have discussion about this verse and this word, okay? And their conclusion is that really this has the connotation of um, grafted or intermingled. So in other words, you could have translated that into the English as in you, all the families of the earth will be grafted. Is that a preach? Okay. <laughs> which, which is why, by the way, Shaul picks up on this because Shaul, A, is very familiar with um, the Torah and the Tanakh, but he's also very familiar with the understandings that had come down, right? He picks up on this in Romans 11, this concept of grafting that goes all the way back to the first promise given to Abraham. <clears throat> okay, so what we have is um, we have this idea being introduced of being grafted in Genesis 12, 3. Okay, so kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Then if we, if we move along, we get to uh, Genesis 17, okay? Somebody, uh, somebody turn to Genesis 17, starting with verse 5, read, read verse 5 through 8. Yes. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan. Okay. So here is where we have, uh, depending on how you enumerate that those passages, there's about seven promises that are given to Abraham in those four or five verses. But one of them, he makes the statement that you will be a father of nations. Okay? La'av Mon Concept that all the nations are going to be grafted in through Abraham, and he's going to become a father of nations. Uh, and so, if we look, if we if we just think about that concept for a moment, if his physical descendants, how 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 is that going to happen? In other words, 
he has physical seed, and his seed has seed, right? So he is the father of a people. But how how is that going to come going to come about, right? And there's a couple of ways that we can answer that, but we need to we need to think about this statement, "father of nations," plural. Okay. Now. The promises are given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17. Who are the promises then passed to? Isaac. Isaac. Okay. So if we go to, um, if, we, if we talk about Isaac for a second, if we go to Genesis um, 20, 26, yes, Genesis 26. Verses 1 through 4, whoever's got that. Rock. <clears throat> now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So journey in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Thank you. Okay. So again, we see the same promise, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be uh, will be blessed. Okay. And in the Hebrew, the Hebrew called Oyim Haaretz. Okay. So. The promise for the blessing of the nations or the grafting in of the nations, depending on how you want to interpret the Hebrew, goes is given to Abraham, passed to Isaac. Then who does it go to? Jacob. Okay. So Jacob. Alright, and if we go to Genesis twenty-eight, verse ten. So we got that. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Uh, where do you want me to go to? Uh, uh, you know what? It may, be, it may be like 13. 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you all of your offspring, and uh, you and all of your offspring, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay. So. We have a slight difference in in Genesis 26 with respect to Isaac. We have the the brachu, the the bait, which is what we would expect. But then it switches back in Genesis 28 with a nun, the brachu, which again is this kind of strange use that has the connotation of being grafted in. Okay, um, so we we have a clear promise given. Passed to Isaac, passed to Jacob. Okay, then from Jacob, who is it given to? 
different. Is there a something just given? It's given to who? Ephraim. Ephraim. Okay. So, and, and this, by the way, um, I've asked this question to Christians, to Messianics, okay. and you ask them, the promises were given to Abraham. Yes, yes. Who were they? Who were they passed to? Well, of course, Isaac. Okay. And then who? Jacob. Okay. And then who? And a lot of people don't know. Jacob had twelve sons. Okay. Which which of the twelve inherited those promises? Right. If we go to um, if we go to Genesis 48. Okay, so this is this is a famous passage, right? So this is near the end of Yaakov's life. And he's gathering all of his sons and he's going to prophetically bless them. And those blessings that he gave are understood to be speaking of the end of days. Okay? Um, <clears throat> So in Genesis 48, verse, uh, verses 12 through 19, does anybody have that handy? Anybody? So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, when he, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my, father, my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he, sh he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Okay, great. So we have this very unique passage, and this unique event, really, where Jacob calls his son Joseph. Joseph brings his two, his two sons, Jacob's grandsons, to be blessed by their grandfather. And we have this unique situation where Jacob, who's now very old in age, you know, uh, definitely towards the end of his life, can't can't see well, all that kind of all those kind of things. He does something very unique. He actually adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children. They are no longer, from this point, the sons of Yosef. I mean, they are physically. But they are now considered sons of Jacob, right? To the point now 
the name of Yosef is uh, now sort of a second-hand name with respect to one of the tribes, and his name is replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh as, as tribes in Israel. Okay, so, so, so we have this very unique uh, occurrence here where Jacob, for some reason, feels compelled to actually adopt these, these grandkids as his own direct seed. And then, in this kind of mysterious fashion, as he goes to bless them, Manasseh being the older one, Ephraim being the younger one, the custom would have been that Manasseh would have been received the blessing from the right hand, the right hand being symbolic of your strength, right? But Jacob does the switcheroo, right? <laughs> Crosses his hands, right? And I've heard, I've heard Christians preach, he made a sign of a cross. You know, they kind of get all, you know, all, all spiritual about that. <laughs> he, he crosses his hands and he puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. We know this is something unusual. Why do we know that? Because Joseph himself says, wait, wait, hold on, Pops. You got, I, know you're, I know your eyesight's going bad. You've got this wrong here. And he starts to move his hands and put them in the right position. And Jacob says, no, 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 no. Manasseh is going to also be great. But Ephraim, Ephraim will be the greater. The younger will be greater than the older. Okay? And he blesses them both, but, he, but the blessing to Ephraim is, is particularly unique because he says that Ephraim will become a melon hagoim. Okay, commonly translated as a multitude uh, multitude of nations. Okay, very similar to the concept that was given to Abraham in, in Genesis 12.3 that he would be a father of nations, okay? So the blessing of Abraham goes to Isaac, Jacob, and Ephraim. So there's something unique about Ephraim and the tribe of Ephraim. And I think if anybody tries to argue that that's not the case, then how do you, then how do you explain what's happening here? Deliberate. Very deliberate, very unusual, but yet very, very deliberate. Okay. I, I find it very fascinating that each patriarch who has received the blessing have all been second born. You have Isaac to Ishmael. That's another class, but yes. You have yeah, right. Yaakov <laughs> to Esau, and now you have Ephraim to Manasseh. Yep. Great, great observation. So, so there's something very unique here. Now, a couple things. F, Ephraim, anybody know what its name means? Fruitful. It means fruitful, but not just fruitful. It means like really, really fruitful. Okay? In fact, one commentary associates this with the idea of like a school of fish. Should be some romance going off in your minds, okay? Oh, all right. So, 
Ephraim means really, really fruitful, like a school of teeming fish, okay? And he is promised to become a multitude of nations. Now, if you look up this word melo in a Strong's, okay, Strong's actually has one of the definitions, if I'm not mistaken, as uh, fullness. So you could actually translate this as he would become the fullness of the goyim, of the Gentiles, of the nations. Hmm, where have I heard that verse? Where have I heard that phraseology before? I'm still playing. <laughs> the fullness of the nations comes in. Romans 11, 25, in the famous passage where Shaul is giving a drosh on this whole concept of grafting in that goes all the way back to Abraham. And he says that concerning um, that concerning Judah and the in the in the nation at that time in his day that they have been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Okay, so. There's some, the point that I'm trying to make here is there are some very unique things happening in the text that should cause us to ask questions. Okay? And the two-house movement people have picked up on this. And they've run with it. So whether we agree with the two-house theology and all that it represents or not, is not the point, again, of this class. But I think we owe the two-house movement a bit of gratitude because they brought attention to, I believe, something very unique in the text that nobody else was really focused on before they kind of raised this as a key issue. Okay. Now, how they apply that that's you know we'll talk about that at some point, but the point is there is something unique here, okay? And Shaul picks up on this very concept. So now, um, so now we're gonna you know you fast forward from the, over here with the patriarchs, right? We fast forward, we we get to the time of the prophets, and we get to the time of Shlomo <clears throat> after Solomon the kingdom is split, right? And it's split because why? Why was it split? Why was it split? Why was the kingdom split in two? You mean after Solomon? Huh? You mean after Solomon? Yeah. One level is the sin of Rehoboam. Yeah, but that was after it was split. It was split because of the sin of Shlomo. In other words, God said First Kings, I want to say 11. Don't quote me on the address there, but God said because of Shlomo's disobedience, the fact that he went after, he allowed his many wives to turn his heart towards other gods and whatnot, that the kingdom would be would, would be rendered from him, but not while he was alive, because of his promise to his father. So he said, I'm not going to rend it from you 
but because of your sin, I'm going to rend it from your seed, Rehoboam. Okay? So the kingdom is split in two. Now, interestingly enough, we have some believe a hint of this earlier in the Tanakh, or actually in the Torah. Okay? Um, and there's a, there's a concept within the Torah that says whatever happens to the fathers happens to the sons. And that all the things that happen to the fathers is really a microcosm, prophetically speaking, of what was to happen to the, to the, to the descendants. Okay? Where in the Torah do we have a picture of the family being split? Is that where, <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob um, planning on separating half of his tribe with Leah, Leah and the other okay. with Rachel? Genesis 32, okay. <clears throat> this is when he's coming back from Laban's, uh, from, from Padanaram. He gets to the camp just across the river from, you know, from, from Canaan, right? He has... The, uh, he, he's at the, the camp called Manachaim, right? He has the encounter with the man who's like the face of God, right? Which is also when his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And then the next day, his, a messenger comes and says, hey, your brother Esau is coming with 400 men at arms. And what does he do? He says, whoa, because he knows the animosity there, right? He knows the history there. And what does he do? He, he comes up with a plan to divide the family. And he divides the family into Leah, right, and Rachel. Okay? Who are Rachel's children? Joseph and Benjamin. Right, Benjamin is still in Europe. Okay, and then the, and then the dominant, <coughs> dominant, um, the dominant tribe here, of course, would be Judah, the, the dominant son that plays out in, in history. So we have this deliberate incident of the father Jacob splitting, dividing the family out of, what was his motivation? Fear. Fear? Okay, fear. But why did he decide to take this tactic? What was his Posterity. Protection. What, he's what, actually... Yeah, he's looking to preserve his line going, going he's forward. He's actually, right. He divides the, the family to protect promise, as it were. Because his thinking is, I'm going to send Leah and all of her children on ahead first. <coughs> if Esau really intends to do me harm, he's going to attack them, but I'm going to send, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of hold Rachel back, because if he starts to attack, then they can flee and get away. Is, is basically the military strategy that he's thinking, okay? 
And then, of course, we know that Esau did intend to do harm, but he doesn't do harm then. That's, I think we're familiar with that. But the point is, we have a hint here in Genesis 32, some would argue, of a splitting of the family along Joseph, Ephraim, and Judah. Okay? That plays out in reality after the reign of Shlomo, when we have these two nations. Okay? Then, of course, we have the time of the prophets. What are both kingdoms doing? What are both Judah and Ephraim doing? They're, they're being disobedient, right? They're both playing the harlot after other gods. It, you know, the northern kingdom, because of the animosity that had come up with um, the southern kingdom, decided we're not even going to go down to Jerusalem anymore. Forget that. We're going to build our own temple up here, and we're going to do our own thing up here. And so, I mean, they really go off the reservation, um, and they get involved with all kinds of idolatry. And God sends prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom and says, turn or burn, guys. I mean, this is crazy. You need to repent or or I'm you know, or it's over with. Hmm. Prophet after prophet um, is sent to the northern kingdom. There's also prophets sent to the southern kingdom as well. Okay. But we have um, we have a famous passage uh, from the primary prophet that was sent to the northern kingdom, which is the prophet Hosea. Okay? And the whole book of Hosea is really all addressed or all written to um, the northern kingdom. But in Hosea chapter 1, we have this famous incident where God starts out and he says, This is the word about Anai that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reigns of Uziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Yehezkiah, kings of Yehuda. And he goes on and he says, he tells uh, Hosea, Go marry a harlot. <laughs> Go marry a harlot. Okay. Uh, Hosea, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe is a Levite. He says, go marry a, a harlot. Isn't that contrary to the Torah? Mm-hmm. Only if he's a priest. Okay, so no, you're no. saying if he's not a, if only if right. he's a Kohen. Right, only if he's a Kohen. Okay, yeah. so, and, and I don't know if he was a Kohen or not. I think he was from the tribe of Levi, but, mm-hmm. but, he, but in other words, he's saying, go marry this woman who you know to be a known prostitute. That seems a little contrary to what God counsels everywhere else in the scripture, right? But, and he says, have children with this harlot, for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from other night. Okay? He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin. Okay, great. I I stand corrected. So this wouldn't have been a problem according to the Torah, too. So, uh, yeah, it's good that God didn't tell the Bridget, sir. Well, but we, we are have some, some unique situations where, for example, go kill your son Isaac. Yeah, kid Yeah. Right. Okay. But whenever we have those strange situations coming from God, something's up. It's because 
he's not advocating that as a way of life, he's trying to make a point. Obviously the point he's trying to make here is look, I'm Israel is my wife. We got married at Sinai. Okay? And she's playing the harlot and she refuses to repent. And I just so you can know how I feel, Moshe, go marry a harlot. And when she goes out and does her business, see how it feels. Because that's how I feel. Okay? So he goes, he marries Gomer, the daughter of Dimlaim. She conceives, she bears a son, and God tells him to call his name Jezreel. Son number one, Jezreel, okay, which is really Yitzreel, uh, which basically means uh, God will scatter. Okay. Then he tells him, okay. His wife conceives again, and he tells Jose, all right, name son number two. This is Lohami. Lo Ruhama. Ruhama, Okay. Lo in Hebrew means not or no. Rahuma has the same root as like Racham, Rachami. Basically means no mercy. And then his wife conceives a third time. And he says, name this son Lo Ami. Not my people. Not my people. <clears throat> okay. And then the point here is that the names of his sons are prophetic as to what was going to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel or, or Ephraim. Okay. That because they refuse to repent and they continue in their disobedience, they continue in their in, in their idolatry, etc., etc., that God was going to scatter them among the nations. He was not going to have mercy on them, and they were no longer going to be His people. Okay, that their names were prophetic of what the judgment was going to be to the northern kingdom. This happens. Right? Jeremiah chapter 3, I believe it is, referring to the northern kingdom, says God finally writes a bill of divorce. That's it. You're not my wife anymore, which, by the way, means you are no longer entitled to the inheritance, to the promises. You're cut off. And he sends the Assyrians, right? Um, which at the time, uh, I believe Nineveh was the dominant city, right? We just we just read Jonah. Okay. He sends the Assyrians to come in, take them, and they are taken to captivity and they are scattered. Now there's a thousand theories of historically where they went. Some people say. You know they went up. You know some people say they went up. You know north and ended up in 
Russia and Eastern Europe and some, they were taken, you know, when Babylon took over Assyria, they were really just all part of, part of Babylon now. I mean, and then there's all, I mean, there's just a gazillion different theories. The, the reality is, we don't know. We don't know what happened. And that's the whole point. Okay? And by the way, this is true within traditional Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism, um, for the most part, obviously there's always a few exceptions, would agree that there is uncertainty as to what really, where they really went, where they are today, etc. You know, there's B'nai Manashe, this group in India that obviously keeps Jewish customs and have for hundreds of years. You know, there's a group in China and Mongolia that, you know, so we see these kind of like pockets, but by and large, everybody agrees we don't really know. Lots of theories, but we're not really sure. Some people will say, well, but we see later in the Tanakh and we see even in the apostolic writings, people who associated themselves with a particular tribe from the north and they say, ah, well see, they must have just, they must have been there. Well, that doesn't prove anything. That, that, all that proves is that at some point, one of them migrated to the south, right? And certainly any of, anybody that was righteous in this period of time would have hightailed it out of there and gone down to Jerusalem. They were told what was coming. Right. So the fact that we have, there's always been people from both tribes in both areas, right? That's not the point. The point is we don't really know what happened. We know this prophecy came to pass. They have been scattered. We know that there was no mercy. I mean, they came in and they gone. Everything, right? Many of them perished. And we know that for all intents and purposes, they're not really his people anymore in terms of wherever they are, whatever they're doing. They're not, they're not, they're not living according to the Torah, according to the traditions, according to commandments, etc. Right? So we know all of these prophecies have come to pass, and we know that the prophecy means equal, that they'll be brought back has not happened yet. Yes. Quick question, just so I can be clear. Uh, those prophecies that you're saying have come to pass came to pass when exactly? 721 before the Common Era, when Assyria came in and, and uh, ransacked the north, killed many of them, and took the rest of them captive. And then basically it would, I mean, I guess it would be a, a good assumption to assume that from then until today, all of that would still be applicable. I mean, obviously, some people can usually just like there, but not yet, and all that stuff. As far as like God's people and who's not His people, and so on and so forth, right? Correct. Okay. And uh, while Colby's making his comment, somebody turn to First Peter chapter two, and somebody turn to Romans chapter nine. Colby, I was going to ask just to be fair, isn't Hosea doesn't end with number three right no he doesn't so and the prophecy of jeremiah even though we technically maybe wrote a get didn't cash in on it necessarily would that be i would say it this way what what did we just rehearse last shabbat on yom kippur what did we recite over and over again god is what Merciful, merciful, slow to anger, forgiving. Okay. So, in his anger, in, in, when his anger 
kind of reached the boiling point, this was the judgment, and that came to pass. But because his attribute of mercy is always stronger than his attribute of judgment, he always leaves the door open for return. And he did that with the northern kingdom as well. In fact, he goes on, Hosea goes on to prophesy that a day will come in the future when you will get up, you will realize, you know, what you've done, who you are, and you will come back. And in the place where I told you you're not my people, you will become my people, and I will be your God. And you will be called sons of the living God. Only time in the Tanakh that that phrase is used. And it's in reference to the future return and redemption, if you will, of the northern kingdom. So yes, you're right. This isn't the end of them, which is why we have the prophecy in Ezekiel and other places. The Messiah will ultimately bring them back, whoever they are, wherever they are. Amen. Who's got 1 Peter chapter 2? Starting with verse 5 through 10, please. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua Mashiach. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but not for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a real priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, whom, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay. So here we see Peter, who, by the way, if you go back to the beginning of his letter, it's addressed to God's chosen people living as uh, Stern translates translates the Greek to aliens. God's chosen people living as aliens in the diaspora in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia, Bithynia, you know, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay, so Peter's addressing this letter to people he believes are chosen by God from afore, but they are living among the nations as aliens. Interesting kind of description there. And he says of them, you didn't have mercy, but now you do, of course, through this cornerstone who is Messiah Yeshua. Yeshua right? You weren't a people but now you are. Okay. Who's got Romans 9? I got it. 
What what verses? Uh, twenty three through twenty six. <clears throat> what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Okay. So Paul quotes the prophet Hosea verbatim as he's writing to the believers in Rome. Okay. Who were, uh, were there some Jews there in that community? Certainly. Was it predominantly Gentile God peers? peers? Most certainly. But he associates them with the prophecy of Hosea to the northern kingdom. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. My, again, my goal was to not try to decide uh, or argue you know, for or against two-house theology. We will do that at some point. But my, my point here was to bring out some key texts so that we can start to kind of mull on them, chew on them, think about them. Because it is, I think, unique that both Kepha and Shaul both associate the prophecies of Hosea to the northern kingdom with these Gentile communities, you know, 800 years later in these, in, in these surrounding nations. So they had a view as to how that all tied together. So, um, final thoughts, comments on any of that before we wrap up? Did anybody see anything for the either the first time or in a different light in the discussion tonight? The nuance of this blessing is cool. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say the nuance helps because I think that all I've ever really heard was the uh, Jeremiah or the Ezekiel passage, which, to be honest, living by its lonesome, it's pretty easy to dismiss. It's like, well, just because you act like you're part of Israel doesn't make you like genetically Israel. You know, that seems a little like a stretch to me. So. That was definitely a little interesting to see some of the mm. broader biblical reasons behind some of the thoughts. Well, and, and I think one misconception within the two house movement is that they all believe they're physically descendants. That's not true. There are certainly groups that go that far. Um, you know, you see the you see someone running around with the, the t-shirts. Um, Yosef High, right? You know, uh, so, but 
I'll, I'll say most two house people are not saying that I'm physically descended from Abraham because most of them would argue that the physical lineage has been really severed. Think about it. This happens in 721 before the Common Era. They are, they have now been for almost three millennia interspersed among who knows what nations. Okay? There is no way that they could, that anyone could ever determine physically if they can trace their physical heritage all the way back to Jacob or to Joseph. There's just, it, that's not, I mean, that's not physically possible. I mean, God certainly has a plan here, and this is the point. The point is that there is a larger intergalactic cosmic plan at work that we all have to recognize. How we apply that, how we understand it, there's going to be different interpretations, there's going to be different views, you know, but we have to recognize that there is a plan unfolding that's part of God's plan of redemption. And ultimately, Messiah Yeshua is the one that brings this all to a culmination because he was sent to who? The lost sheep. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. How you want to interpret house of Israel there? Reasonable people no, can disagree. That, that's just a troublemaker comment. <laughs> about it. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm just, uh, as you were teaching this, Greg, I am amazed at how, you know, God, through Hosea, was saying, I divorce you. And how through the, uh, Yeshua's death, there's almost a, a reinstatement of that marriage to Israel that we see communicated in Kepha and Shaul's letters. And at the same time, in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, we're seeing these Gentiles coming in and being grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Any other final thoughts? So, <laughs> there is a second class coming. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's over the top. And like you said, it's not monolithic, so yeah. you, know, you can pick and choose you know, parts of it that are cool and yeah. potentially biblically correct and so forth. And yeah. I understand it. Um, but you, you, the thing that, that caught me in this review was that you're implying, I think, that Paul and Peter are both identifying peoples and primarily Gentiles as being some of those people. I guess what I'll say about that <laughs> is that they make those statements, they quote the prophet while they're addressing Gentiles. Primarily Gentiles. Yes. Yeah. If their words are inspired and their words were deliberate and they both are well versed 
in the prophecies in the understandings, then we have to conclude the choice of words was not by accident. So, again, how how far do we go with that? How far do we apply that? You know, that's all debatable. But the point that I want to make this recognize is there's something afoot here that God is trying to trying to pull out. That's all I'm trying to do. I mean. When the rabbis of old took leave of each other at the study hall, they would say one to another, you shall see your world and your life, and your end shall be with the life of the world to come, and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom, and may your tongue bring forth song. May your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of the Torah. May your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge. And your kidneys rejoice in righteousness. And your feet run to hear the words of the ancient of days. And his Messiah, Yeshua. Everybody said? Amen. Thank you. Well done. Thank you, gentlemen.